Uh, everyone has the right to die with dignity how and when they decide. Uh, everyone should be free to marry whoever they like. Everybody uh, has the right to feel safe in their workplace. Uh, these are probably familiar statements to you because we live in a culture really obsessed with the notion of human rights and freedom. Uh, our rights are connected and often based on whatever our society decides or is convicted is good for human life and human flourishing. So it's our right to be true to ourselves and to express ourselves and it's our right to have people affirm and even celebrate that. Freedom of choice, human rights, it's the mantra of our culture. And often it seems like this is the primary or perhaps even the only criteria that matters for deciding if an action is right. And Christians, the church, both now and throughout all of history, is not immune to this attitude or to the question of rights. Uh, what Christians have the right to do or to not do is the pivotal question facing the Corinthian church in the themes of chapters 8 to 10. And the question of freedom and rights revolved around one central issue here, and that is whether a Christian can or cannot eat food that has been offered or sacrificed to an idol. You see it there in verse 1 of chapter 8. Uh, and verse 1 begins with the words, now about, uh, suggesting that just as Paul did back in chapter 7 on singleness and marriage, this whole section throughout chapters 8 to 10 is Paul answering a question that the Corinthians, or multiple questions, that the Corinthians had written to him in a letter. It's why you'll see in both verse 1 and verse 4, it's likely that Paul quotes them as he answers the question. Uh, but I suspect for many of you already, this subject is just totally foreign uh, and seemingly irrelevant. Uh, most of us are not overly concerned where our food comes from, unless you're committed to being organic, perhaps. However, I suspect that the idea of it being connected to idol worship seems unlikely. Yet for some of you, perhaps those of African or Asian background, this would be both more familiar and perhaps more relevant with the expectation, especially from family, to participate still in ancestor worship, to visit temple or to offer sacrifices. And so can Christians eat food sacrificed to idols? Can they even go to the temple of an idol and eat there? This one main issue seemed to have two conflicting groups in the Corinthian church. Uh, firstly, there's those we heard about in verse 7 that Paul describes as the weak. Perhaps we might call them the conservative Christians, whose conscience convicts them to not eat because it's wrong. Now, on the other side, there's the strong, though it's worth noting that Paul doesn't call them that. Uh, they're the knowledgeable here, and they feel no issue whatsoever. Their understanding of God and of idols liberates them to, to eat and to go to temple because it doesn't or it won't affect them at all. And it is interesting that Paul only addresses that group in the passage, perhaps they were the majority in Corinth. And this question was far from trivial for the Corinthians because idol food was just such a normal part of their life. Corinth was full of temples to different gods. It was just day-to-day -day normal. 
Uh, The person, the worshipper, would come to the temple to offer food or especially bring an animal to be sacrificed uh, to to the temple in devotion of their god, whether it was Zeus or Aphrodite or any of the many deities that filled Corinth. Some of the food would stay with the priest who did the sacrifice. Most would then be divided up for use in the temple or taken home by the worshipper who brought it and the rest then gone to the markets to be sold. And so this one issue with two groups had three main contexts that it would play out. Uh, The first would be an invitation to a meal at a dining hall which was attached to the temple. Uh, See, most homes in Corinth were small and unable to host many people, so temples had dining rooms uh, where private events could be held. In fact, excavations in Corinth today have shown that temples could have as many as 40 dining rooms attached to them that would seat between 8 to 10 people. So birthday parties, business meetings, private dinners would all take place at the temple of the god And being invited to this temple, invited to a meal and offered food that had been sacrificed to the God of that temple would be fairly standard, a normal part of social life in Corinth. Secondly, there would be meals in the home of another person. Your non-Christian friend goes to temple in the morning, then invites you over for dinner and serves you food that was offered there that day. Or thirdly, this was a question that would come up in terms of just buying food at the local market with most of the meat coming from the temple. And so this question would even shape the daily shopping decision of what a Christian would even eat. And so the question of food offered to idols was a central issue of answering for the Corinthians, how do Christians live faithfully in a culture that is saturated in idolatry, that then pervades public and private work and social life. And I hope that you can see that answering that question is very relevant for us today, regardless of how familiar or present the issue of food offered to idols. And how Paul answers this question throughout chapters 8 to 10, but especially tonight here in chapter 8, will be so helpful for us. Because Christians have often divided or been in conflict over what we might call the grey areas of the Christian life. Topics that have often come up in a culture saturated by, in idolatry. Things that are normal for the world to participate in. Issues of idols that are not just about pagan temples but materialism. What's acceptable in a sex-crazed society or one that is driven by self-indulgence or greed? For example, how would you answer some of the following questions? And let's go with in your head to avoid controversy too early. Is it right for all Christians to watch R-rated movies, whether excessive violence or graphic content, to drink alcohol, to smoke, to get tattoos, to get as many tattoos as they want? Can and should Christians listen to any kind of music? Read Harry Potter. Dress any way they like, whether as much or as little as they like. You see, how you answer any of those questions, just as the Corinthians had to answer their question about food offered to idols, would put them at odds with their culture, be costly in their work and social life, even within their families. Christians at all times and in all places feel the tension of being in the world as Jesus' people, salt and light, shining in a dark world, 
balanced against the kind of straight-out compromise where we are no different at all. But what we see in 1 Corinthians is actually that how a Christian answers that question will also put them at odds with other Christians who answer it differently. So how does Christian community navigate all this? Well, notice that rather than just burst in with a yes or a no or even a maybe, Paul begins with the foundational question of what drives our decision in the first place. As in verses 1 to 3, he contrasts love and knowledge. So if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 1 with me. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, the knowledge that Paul has in mind here is the knowledge of verse 4. It's the knowledge about the true and living God that's foundational to being a Christian. Knowledge of the true God revealed in Jesus that would have, of course, been central to Paul's teaching when he started the church in Corinth. And Paul here, I think, agrees with the Corinthian quote there in the quotation marks. We all have knowledge about God. That's foundational to being Christian. But then he quickly qualifies that. Knowledge puffs up. You see, knowing things, even good things about God, can inflate us with pride and arrogance. We boast in our knowledge. We look down on others with less knowledge than us. And you've probably met this kind of Christian, right? Maybe you've been this kind of Christian. One that's just a bit smug based on how much they know. The Christian that kind of says things like, oh, I remember when I hadn't read my whole way through the Bible. Oh, yes, I used to be scared. I didn't understand Revelation either. But if you think about it, it's actually quite obvious. I've just finished my 12th commentary on Mark. How many have you read? That's not how Calvin says it. You know, like there's, there's so many Christians that have let their knowledge of God cause them to become puffed up and self-inflated. The Christians who just love to talk to show you how much they know. It's why I think 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 was the most important verse that I read at Bible college. But Paul is not anti-knowledge or anti-intellectual. Knowledge in itself is not bad. But Paul is wanting them and us to reflect on where does knowledge take them. You see, while knowledge does have a self-absorbed benefit, love looks to the needs of others. Verse 1, love builds up. And by contrasting love with knowledge, he's not saying they're opposed or somehow incompatible. Rather that knowledge should not be used to inflate ourselves but guide us in how we love. We see it, verse 2, if anyone thinks he knows anything, yet he does not know it as he ought to know it. You see, knowledge and humility are meant to go hand in hand for the Christian because we know that knowing God is revealed and given, not earned. Paul told us this back in 1 Corinthians 2. We are fully dependent on God's spirit and God's initiative to know anything about God. We need him to reveal himself to us. And so true knowledge of God ought to express itself in humility and other person-centeredness. Because there is a supreme difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Verse 3. 
If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now on the surface, that actually looks like a typo, right? We, th- we would think Paul would say, if anyone loves God, he knows God. But he doesn't say that. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, Paul's showing how absurd it is to let your knowledge of God, let knowing God become a source of pride. Boasting and knowing God is crazy when what you should do is be absolutely humbled by the fact that God knows you. Not in the sense of he knows your address or your favourite music. To be known by God is a relationship term. It's to be called by God, chosen by God, to belong to God based on God's initiative. And so to love and know God, it's a response to his love that should then lead us to love. So in verses 1 to 3, Paul is laying the foundation to say that the decision to eat or to not eat, it's not simply about what you know, your freedom or your rights. It's about love. Love that looks to the needs of others, it's central to being Christian because it's central to true knowledge of God. And so it's worth asking if you're a Christian here tonight, where does your knowledge of God take you? Does it lead you to self-promotion and ego or humility and loving care of others? It's easy to be a church that values and invests in good Bible teaching and just get it plainly wrong in where it takes us and what it does to us? Does your knowledge lead to love or self-inflation? But unlike our culture, love does not promote subjective truth or blind acceptance of whatever people want. Love must be informed and shaped by knowledge, especially right knowledge of God. And so Paul clarifies in verse 4 what it is that all Christians know about God, verse 4. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and there is no God but one. Uh, It's likely that again Paul is quoting the Corinthians here and I think again he agrees with them. You see, Christians do know that there is only one true living God in the world and that all idols, all other gods, are not real. He says they are nothing in the world. It's what we heard in Jeremiah 10 as Mal read it for us. The idols are just the works of man. They are sticks and stones that cannot speak, cannot save. You have to, if you have to pick up your God to move him or her to another location, they're not God. And Christians know this about idols despite the claims and the behaviours of the world. Look at verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. The idols and the idols, the gods, the lords of the world, they are not real. There's no God behind the statue. No God that's hearing their prayers regardless of how passionate or devoted their worshippers are. They exist only in the minds and the imaginations of those who worship them. And so follow the implication. Whether Islam or Buddhism, 
Hinduism or any of the religions throughout the world or in history, Paul's saying they're wrong. Now, such a statement is, of course, countercultural, both in first century Corinth and still now. It's caused riots, as Christians have said it, caused Christians to be jailed or even to lose their life for teaching it. But Christians know that this is reality, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him. We exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Uh, The background to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and a saying that's called the Shema. Uh, It's what God's people were to memorize and to pass on. It's there on the screen, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. God declares, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul takes this Old Testament verse and says that our commitment to monotheism, that is that there is one true and living God, is not based on religious preference or our convenience but on revelation. God has actually made himself known through Jesus. But through Jesus, the one God and one Lord of Deuteronomy is understood as God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, together they are spoken of as the one God there in verse 6. They are the shared source, the shared agents of creation. And so we're seeing right that the oneness of God is actually quite complex. What Christians call the, the Trinity. We have one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now hopefully you can see that the value and the helpfulness as we have worked our way through the Nicene Creed together that puts these complex realities about God into clear statements. And if you're a Christian here or not yet a Christian here tonight and you have confusion or questions about how we know God, what we know about God, then come and ask or talk to the Christian you came with. But Paul's goal here is not to kind of unpack or explain the complexity of the Trinity, but to show that God's own revelation of himself in Christ puts an end to any doubt, any speculation about the world religions or the existence of God or so-called gods. As people who know God through Christ, we know that idols are nothing. And thus, we are completely free to eat food offered to idols. You see, right knowledge of God will mean that you're free to eat because you know whether you got it from the temple or from Woolworths, meat is just meat. There's no danger or threat to you in eating food that's been offered to a lump of wood or devoted to a pile of stone. You can eat it. But Paul makes clear that your freedom, your right to eat, is not the only consideration Because being a Christian never happens in isolation. We live in community. Verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Now, by this, Paul is not saying that some Christians do not yet know God or confess Jesus as the Lord. That's not possible. No, he's saying that there are some Christians who have not yet fully grasped the implications of the knowledge they have in Jesus. And that's kind of to be expected, right? It takes time for Christians to shape our thinking in response to our culture or even to our previous life as we participated in all sorts of kinds of idolatry. And so for those who are in Corinth, it seems that they're so used to the idols of their city that even now, despite now being Christian, they see the idols as real gods. And so therefore, to eat food that has been sacrificed to those gods would be sinning against their God Jesus and against their conscience and so defile them. Our conscience is that that inner voice, the moral decision maker that tells us what's right or wrong. And as Christians, our conscience is our understanding of the gospel that then impacts the way we think and behave. And so it should follow then that our conscience needs to be informed, shaped and taught by the gospel. Because Paul is not saying that our conscience is always right. He's not agreeing with the the weak in Corinth. He couldn't be clearer. He says they think the idols are real because their conscience is is weak. They don't understand. They're not enjoying the freedom they could through the gospel. They haven't applied its reality to all of their life. But despite that, Paul says, for them, to eat the food is defilement. Though it is not sinful or wrong, because it is for them in their conscience, it is sin for them. He actually says something quite similar in Romans 14. Uh, He says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that is not from faith is sin. And so as we live in Christian community, we will be among Christians who are compelled that they won't or shouldn't drink alcohol, who won't or shouldn't watch movies or smoke. And because for them, that is how they've resolved to live for God and to honour him, to go against that would be sin for them. And so this means for all Christians, we need to ensure that our conscience is both educated and followed. We need to make sure that our thinking is informed by the Bible, having the gospel shape our whole worldview, which will mean reading good books, making the most of sermons or talks or Bible studies, studying and reading God's word. But I can imagine both here now and in Corinth, some would say to Paul, well, you know what, good for them. They don't want to eat. They don't have to eat. I'm free to eat and I'll eat. And Paul says, no. You see, life in community as Jesus' people is not governed by rights and freedom, but by love. And so while they may eat in the privacy of their own homes, 
because the, the strong or the knowledgeable live among the weak, Paul says their knowledge must be expressed in love, which will ultimately mean, more often than not, they won't eat. And he gives them three clear reasons why. Firstly, because in verse 8, their knowledge actually gives them perspective. You see, they're free to, sh- they're free to eat, for sure. But they also know it doesn't change anything. He says, food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat and no better if we do eat. You see, implicit in this, as it's made clear in Romans 14, is that Christians are not under the Old Testament food law. Uh, No food is unclean or restricted from the Christian. But we also know it doesn't change anything. It's not going to bring us close to God. We're not more or less righteous if we do or don't eat. And so for the sake of those among them, that Christian won't eat. Because of Paul's second reason, the damage their example can cause the weak. Verse 9, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged, literally built up, to offer food to idols, to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, The brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. You see, despite our culture's obsession, Christians are not governed by simply what we have the right to do. Exercising our rights in verse 9 may be a stumbling block for the weak. You see, living in community, we need to be aware of our influence. Uh, I once referenced a, a Harry Potter scene in a talk I did at youth group on a Friday night. It was then swiftly followed by a phone call the next morning from a parent asking why I was encouraging their child to watch it. For this family, for these parents, they had decided it would be wrong, sinful, to watch the movies or read the book. And I wonder how you would respond to that. 8.30, Saturday morning. Why did you tell my child... You see, our our default is to get out the inner lawyer, right? To drop some theology and educate. Defend ourselves at the very least. But Paul goes the other way. Be careful. Be careful about your influence. And the language of verse 11 could not be stronger. He says we need to remember the preciousness of another Christian. They are your brother and sister for whom Christ died. If he can lay down his life for them, surely you can forego certain food. But notice that by the influence or the example of the so-called strong or knowledgeable, Paul says the weaker Christian is ruined, or the NIV, destroyed. That is to speak of losing their faith completely, to stand before God in judgment and be destroyed. And so our behavior, our influence on another Christian can actually set others on a path where they compromise on their faithfulness to Jesus to the point where they abandon him completely, which then naturally leads to Paul's third reason not to eat in verse 12. To influence, to destroy another Christian like this is, of course, to sin against Christ himself. Lovelessness 
is a sin. And so Paul finishes in verse 13 with his own application. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. You see, love might even make you vegetarian. Now, I know for some of you that's, that's hard to swallow. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. But it's actually important to see that the power of verse 13 is not the deliciousness of meat. You see, meat was a luxury item. And for most Christians, it would be beyond just purchasing. It would only come to them if they were invited and participated in events like this at the temple. And Paul's saying, yes, I would forego the Wagyu. But he's actually saying I would endure the cost. The cost is this, that actually not just missing out on good steak, to participate in these meals and celebrations in the temple would be of massive social cost. See, for a Christian in Corinth, it would be a time to mingle with the upper class, to improve your reputation, perhaps get you that job or actually move you up the corporate ladder. And we saw this back in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4. The Corinthians, like so many of us today, were deeply concerned about their social status and acceptance amongst the unbelieving community. And so love will take the cost. Love will miss out. Love will say no to the opportunity for the good of another Christian. Because as God's people, we are free. But we are free to love. As Paul says in Galatians 5, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another in love. But I think we need to make here two clarifying statements. The first one is that as Paul talks about the conscience leading some Christians to refrain, to stop doing certain things that he says are not sin in and of themselves, that's fine, but it does not go the other way. Christians cannot allow their conscience to accept things that God's word clearly says are sin. We saw that actually back in chapters 5 and 6. The Corinthians were embracing the world's view of sex and what's normal against what God's word is, and he says no. The conscience can never be used to allow sin. But secondly, notice that Paul is not saying the weak are allowed to impose their preference or conviction on others. What he's calling for here is actually the willing, joyful, thoughtful, voluntary sacrifice of love from one Christian to another for the good of that Christian. But I suspect that for some of us, this just feels totally paralyzing, right? It seems that what I watch, what I eat, what I say, what I drink could potentially influence or destroy another Christian. How could we possibly navigate through such a minefield of grey areas that it essentially doesn't leave us wanting to sit in the corner, arms folded, to make sure no one ever knows or sees anything about us? Well, I think the answer is we just have to be, as Neil has already encouraged us to be, an authentic community of love where we actually know and value each other as brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. 
where we actually get to know each other so we can build each other up in love, where we can talk about these topics so we do know each other well enough, a community where we can share our struggles, where we can get to know each other, even our backgrounds, so that we will know what might be actually particular areas of challenge or struggle, a community where we are known by God, but actually known by God's people too. And I suspect that if we do that, if we become that kind of community, we'll actually see how needed the application of 1 Corinthians 8 really is. See, how would you feel about changing the TV show or movie you watch based on who comes to your house? Would you be willing to change what you eat or drink at a party because you know there's another Christian there for whom that's a struggle or a tension? Would you even be willing to consider the way you spend your money, the kind of car you drive, how much you spend on tech or luxury or holidays because you are among so many other Christians who are struggling financially and it would be to flaunt it to them or who have self-destructive habits in the way they use their money. Are you willing to love? Love that wants to build others up. It's actually thorough and deeply practical. But are we willing Because if you're like me, you know that is a searching question. It challenges that inner lawyer that wants to just say, why can't they change, right? I'm the one that's right. They should change. So how can we actually do this? How would we possibly sustain this? Well, actually, love is sustained and love is motivated by our knowledge of God through Jesus. Think of his example. Jesus, who gave up his place in heaven to become a man, a servant. Jesus, who deserves, has the right to be worshipped and adored, yet was whipped, mocked, killed for our sake. Jesus, who endured the cross so that we could have the right to become children of God. You see, we are free to love as we bask in the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that we might become truly rich. It's by looking to and resting in him alone that we know and enjoy our freedom as his people but then use it to love and follow his example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love and example of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for our servant king. And we ask that you would work now to deepen our awareness, our understanding, our joy in his love. Father, please work in us a love and awareness and joy of his example so that we would go and do likewise. Help us now to be truly a people of love who not only willingly, even joyfully forego freedom and rights 
for the good of our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. We ask this for the good of your people and for the glory of his name. Amen.